wise and understanding among you. Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Is your faith genuine? How would you know? Are you the real deal? If you were to stand before God and try to make a case for your faith before him, a faith that would lead to salvation, how confident would you be that you could make the case before him? That's the theme of the book of James. He wants us to understand what genuine faith looks like. And that's why our series is called Faith That Works. There's a lot of things that faith is. We're going to talk a lot about those things today. But one of the things that is true of faith, according to James, is that it works its way out into our life. It's not just something that's in our head. It's not just emotions that we have in our heart, but it works out with our hands, how we actually live our life. And I've been excited for the section that we're, I get to teach today. Part of it is because this forms the theological centerpiece, I believe, of the book of James. And in this verse, in this section, is a theme verse that I think is the theme for the entire book of James. But also reason that I'm excited to teach this is that this passage is often misunderstood. Biblically and historically, theologically, people have misunderstood this section because James is talking very directly about how our faith What we believe, the things that we believe to be true, interplays with our works, our obedience. What is the nature of salvation as it relates to faith and as it relates to works? Here's what I hope you notice. I'm going to read this whole entire section in one reading. I hope that there's some things that you hear in there. You actually say, that sounds funny. That sounds a little bit different from other things I think I've read in the Bible. Let's read this section together, the whole thing, and then we're going to unpack it together. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose that a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself or faith alone, if not accompanied by action, is dead. 
But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my, my, I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe? You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Verse 24, I think this is the thesis verse of the entire book of James, says this, you see that a person is considered righteous, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I hope that as you listen to me read that and you read it on the screen, that something in you said that doesn't sound like things that I've heard you say before. Bob, I feel like you and Brian have stood on that stage over and over and over again and talked about our standing before God, our ability to have a relationship with God is by faith alone and not by works. It seems like James is saying something very different here. It seems like he's elevating the role of works and deeds and obedience over faith alone. Let's compare the thesis verse of James with the thesis verse of the book of Romans where Paul writes, and probably one of the most extended explanations of the gospel or the new covenant, let's look at the two different theme verses or thesis verses of those two bodies of work. What I just read to you, James 22, 24 says this, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now here's Paul, the thesis of Romans, Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Which is it? Do, do, we, do we have a, a seeming contradiction here? Our two major pillars of the early church, are they at odds with one another? Are they saying very different things? And if salvation is resting on the answer to this question, on the genuineness of our faith, we've got something that we've got to think about. What is the basis of our salvation? Is it faith or is it works? Do James and Paul agree or is there a contradiction? Here's what I want to do today. Uh, we want to just have our theological thinking caps on. It's going to be a little more teaching than it is preaching, but we've got to understand this. And here's how I'm going to do this. I'm going to create this picture that explains the new covenant as proposed by Paul from the book of Ephesians, probably one of the simplest explanations of the gospel or the new covenant. 
but I'm gonna put that up against what James is teaching and try to help us understand, are they saying something different or are they actually looking at something from different ways? We're gonna start by talking about what I said, the new covenant. Another way to say this is the gospel. And some of you that know me, you know I love triangles. I love pictures because I think they stick in our mind. The new covenant. What is this thing of a covenant? A covenant simply is an agreement that God makes with people. There are covenants all throughout the Bible. There's a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses, and now we're talking about the last covenant, the new covenant. But there's God's part to a covenant, and then there's man's part, people's part, our response to God's covenant. And probably the most simple explanation of the new covenant is found in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And as I read this, there's going to be three words that you're going to need to pay attention to in this verse. Grace, saved, and faith. This is Paul's explanation of the new covenant. And again, this new covenant... This is an agreement that God makes with us. Here are the terms of the new covenant. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. First word, grace. We use that term a lot around here, but what does it mean? Grace simply means unmerited favor. It means something that is given to you that you didn't work for or earn. Later in that verse, you see that Paul uses the word gift. That's the same idea of grace. When you get a gift at Christmas time or at your birthday, did you do something to work for or earn that? No. It was given to you as a gift. This covenant, this gospel message is a gift given to us by God. It says, by grace, you have been saved. What is a person saved from? God rescues them. God reaches down, pulls them out of the kingdom of darkness, pulls them into the kingdom of light, pulls them into a relationship with him, And this is what God provides for people in this new covenant. He gives them an identity. Gives them an identity. He says, now, because of what I've done for you, my reaching down to you, this is who you are. Now, you're my children. You are my sons. You are my daughters. You are heirs. You are heirs with Christ in the promises of God. That's the identity that God gives us. But it says that the means of receiving that identity is faith. This faith where we put our trust, we put our hope in what? What are we putting our trust and our hope in? The cross. We put our faith 
We lean into, we can't do this on our own. We put our trust in the cross of Christ. And just to make it explicitly clear, Paul continues to talk about what the, what the terms of this covenant are not. He goes on to say, it is not from yourselves. He's saying this is not something that you can accomplish for yourself. I have to do this. I have to initiate it. You just respond. And then he says another negative. He said, it is not by works. He's saying really simply, you can't accomplish this. Even if you wanted to, even if you said, just just give me the list. Tell me what the list is. What is it that I need to do? And I'll start doing it. Paul's just saying, if, if you even start down that road, you're completely missing it. It's not of yourselves, and it's not by works. But because of what God did, because of what Christ did on the cross, you're given an identity. And I want you to understand this term. You're given an identity of being in Christ. You are in Christ. Not only is Christ in you, but you are in Christ. It's as if Christ's life is wrapped around you. The theological explanation to this, we call it the union with Christ. And here's what you need to understand about what it means biblically to be in Christ. Hear this. Everything that is true of Christ is now true of you. Let me say that again. Everything that is true of Christ is now true of you. Just as Christ was an heir, now you are a co-heir. Just as he was a son of God, you are sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ of the promises of God. Hear this, friends, hear this. The righteous life that Jesus lived, the life that we should have lived and didn't, is now imputed to you. It is laid over your life as if that was your life. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's how God sees you in Christ, being clothed with him. And that shameful death that Jesus died, hanging on the cross for you, the death that we deserved, he took that for us. He took our guilt, he took our shame, he took our sin. Do you see the picture of what has happened there? Sometimes the Bible calls it the great exchange. God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us. So that in him, in Christ, when we are in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's our identity, the righteousness of God. That's what happened on the cross. I just want to stop for a second. And would you just kind of maybe let the reality of that truth kind of marinate in your mind and your heart a little bit? Let me say this, if you are a follower of Jesus and thinking about that truth doesn't in some way kind of blow your mind a little bit and kind of melt your heart in some way, 
Let me just say, I don't think you understand what I just said. We need to understand the magnitude of what was accomplished for us in Christ. And I would just say this, until that starts to blow your mind and move your heart, don't think about anything else. Reflect on that. Let the roots of your life go into that truth until it starts to bubble up into your life and start to change your heart. Because here's what I believe to be true. When that actually starts to bubble up into your heart, there's gonna be a response that you have in your heart. And the response is gonna be this. It's gonna be gratitude. Incredible gratitude. And I know that maybe you've been around church all your life and you heard this over and over and over again. Don't become indifferent to it just because it's familiar. It needs to blow our mind and move our heart and move our heart to gratitude because it's that heart of gratitude that is gonna move us toward our response to the new covenant because Paul's gonna talk about our response to the new covenant is that we do works. We do deeds as James calls it. We move to a life of obedience. But here's what Paul wants us to understand. That road from who we are in Christ, union with Christ, that road is paved with gratitude, thankfulness for what it is that God has done for us. It's all about gratitude. This is a picture of the new covenant as Paul describes in Ephesians chapter two. Now, here's the question. With what I just read to you from James chapter two, does it seem as if James is saying something different? Is he saying something different about this relationship between works and faith? Because it seems like James is making a lot of emphasis around here. What is it that we do? How is it that we obey? And if you look across the New Testament of the Bible, the message of Jesus and the message of Paul, there were a group of people that countered this message. And their message was one of the law. And the law would say, this is what matters to God. He's not so much worried about giving you an identity that's in Christ. He is concerned with your works and your obedience. What is it that you are actually doing? And the idea there is that we can build our identity or our identity before God can be earned. Earned by obedience to the works. This, friends, is not the gospel. This is not what Paul was talking about. This is not the message of Jesus. Our obedience does not earn us that standing before God. Because friends, if we're in this place, and many people are, I will just say, many people in the church are in this place where they think, if I'm gonna get God to love me and care for me and like me, I've gotta do things for him. I can earn my salvation. But that is gonna take us to fall off on one of two different ways if we believe that that's true. It's gonna lead us to be incredibly fearful and incredibly insecure. Why? Because if this is what we think we need to do to earn God's favor, the question is, how, how much of this? 
If, if obedience or being good is what makes God like me, like, like how good? Like, like what is the list and how well do I need to accomplish the list? How do I know how good is good enough? How will I know when I stand before God? Uh, God, are you, are you gonna curve the final? Like wh- where, where am I gonna land in all this? It creates fear and insecurity. God doesn't want us to live in fear and insecurity. He wants us to live in freedom. But let's take that even to the other side. Let's just say that we're not in fear and insecurity, but we just feel like we're killing it. We're killing, like we are the most obedient people that we know. That will also take us down a wrong road. Because if you believe that you can earn something before God, then your mindset says, God, you owe me. God, I deserve things from you because I did what you asked me to do. And now, God, you have to do for me what I want you to do. And there's a sense of entitlement there. And if we're doing an awesome job, if we think that we're earning something, there's a way that we start to relate to one another. We start to think that I'm better than you. I'm accomplishing this at a better rate than you, at a better degree than you. I matter more than you. And we become judgmental of other people. All those things are things that are completely opposite of what James is talking about in his book. Here's what we've got to understand. What is James saying and what is Paul saying? Are they two different things? They're not. We need to understand this. Paul, when he's talking about righteousness, our standing before God, he is talking about positional righteousness. We have been given an identity, not because what we've done, but because what we have been declared by God because of what Christ did for us on the cross. That is a positional righteousness. What James is talking about in his book is what we're calling a practical righteousness. Meaning, if these things are true, if I have that standing before God, what is the outflow of my life? That I'm going to live in ways. I'm going to, over time, I'm going to start to grow and become more like Christ. So here's what we want to understand. When we're thinking about, are Paul and James at odds with one another? Absolutely not. They're looking at it from two different perspectives. Just think about this in terms of eyesight. If you're looking at something right now, you are looking from two different perspectives because you have two eyes. Now do this. We're all going to do this. Everyone has to do this. Now cover up one eye and look at me. Can you still see me? Yes. You can still see me, but you've lost depth perception. And you can do that with the other eye. You cover the other eye, you lose depth perception. But when you look with both eyes, you still see the object, but you're able to perceive depth. That's what happens when we hold up Paul and James together. We see the depth of the gospel. Paul is looking at the gospel through the lens of this positional righteousness before God. And he's saying that if this is true, what will happen is that there will be practical righteousness. When James writes his book, he is starting with looking through the lens of practical righteousness and saying, if that positional righteousness down there is true, what's going to happen is it's going to start to work itself out in your life. Paul and James are not opposing one another. 
In fact, they are back to back. They're not going toe to toe. They're back to back, but they're fighting different enemies. Paul is fighting against people that would try to teach people that you can earn your salvation before God. And he says, that's not the new covenant. That is not the gospel. James is looking to a group of people that are just saying, it doesn't matter what I do with my life. As long as I just think the right things, believe the right things, I can do whatever I want and I'm okay. That's the enemy that he's fighting. They are together in the gospel, in the new covenant, but they're fighting different enemies. Which of those enemies are we fighting today? I think both of them. I talk to people that they're just so fearful of, am I going to measure up to God? Am I going to do all the things that I need to do to be right before him? And I think they don't understand the gospel. And I think there's other people that say, it doesn't matter how I live my life. I can do whatever I want. And I'm okay because I believe the right things. I said, James would say, you don't understand the gospel. We've got to see it from both sides. So if I had to say, this is the thesis statement rewritten that puts together James and Paul, it would be this. We are saved by faith alone. That's what Paul is saying. We are saved by faith alone. But James would say, but a faith that saves is never alone. It always shows up in how we live our life. We don't try to add works or deeds to our faith to try to legitimize our faith. But if our faith is actually legitimate saving faith, it's going to have an expression in works of obedience. That's going to be the trajectory of our life. Over time, we're going to see progress in becoming more and more like Jesus. And let me say this, it's progress. It's progression, not perfection. Because there's this, we all feel this. Paul did this, James did this, you will do this, I will do this. But there is a trajectory of our life that moves us toward becoming more like Jesus no matter how imperfectly executed that trajectory is, it is moving us to more like Christ. I felt like I had to start with help giving us the theological underpinnings of what it is that James is trying to say in this chunk of scripture. But as you know, he's looking through the practical lens. He's looking at our lives through the practical lens. What are some of the practical things that are gonna be fruit in our life, works in our life, if... We have a genuine faith. The first thing James talked about is a genuine faith cares for those in need. I'll reread what he said. He said, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Such faith, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. What James is saying, genuine faith, it will not be indifferent to the needs of people around them. Here he's talking about physical needs, which is so important, but also spiritual needs of people. We see people differently when we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We start to see people the way that Jesus saw people. And he moved toward people because people were valuable to him. 
we see our own need as well. Here's what I want us to understand. Why is it that being in Christ allows us to suddenly see the needs of other people? And friends, I believe that it's this. We can't come into this kind of identity relationship with Christ until we come to the place that we see our desperate need. We can just look at the cross of Christ and say, oh, that's great that he did that, but I'm okay. It's not until we get to the place where we realize, I'm not okay. I need help, and I'm willing to reach up my hand and grab the hand of a God that is reaching down to me through Christ and pull me up. It's when we see our need that we move toward God. And here's the connection. It's when we know our own need that gives us compassion toward the needs of others because we can see ourselves in their shoes. This last year, I had a a fun friendship that that came about during... uh, during the pandemic, a buddy that I met at the gym and just a fun, nice guy. And so we decided, hey, let's, let's just hang out sometime. And we went and had lunch. And my friend Michael, he started to tell me a little bit about his story. And so like right now, he lives here in Bozeman. He is a software developer for Amazon, very successful in what he does, very fun, alive, great guy to get to hang out with. Uh, but we sat down at lunch and he started to tell me a little bit about his story. He said he was homeless until he was almost 30 years old, lived on the street. His parents were homeless. His dad died in a homeless camp. He was addicted to drugs and alcohol till I think his early 30s. He had a near-death experience that kind of shook his world, and it led him to a 12-step program that got him sober. He got connected to a group of people that were really into fitness. He did three Ironmans. That was, became a part of who he was and what he did. Now here it is, years later, and I'm looking back at where he came from. And here's what I noticed. He often talks with me about a heart and a vision that he has to help homeless people. He has a unique way of talking about homeless people. It's not just something that's out there. For him, it's something that was in here. He knows what it's like to be on the street. He knows what it's like to be addicted. And knowing what that's like moves him to compassion. I think that's what James is trying to help us understand. When we know our desperate need was reached down by God to help us out, that we start to have compassion for others in their need. It's why Jesus, I believe, at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, when he talked about what it is to live a blessed life, he said, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those that know their own spiritual poverty, they knew that they couldn't reach up, and they knew that they couldn't reach up on their own to make themselves righteous before God, but they had, God needed to pull them up. People that know that, he said, theirs is the kingdom of God. When we know our own need, it moves us toward the need of others. That's why the scripture principle of we are blessed. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to the world around us. Social 
justice matters. Matters to James and matters to Jesus and it needs to matter to us. A second thing that genuine faith is not simply belief. This is what James says. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that. Here's what James wants us to understand. Right belief and knowledge about God does not equate to the genuine faith that James is talking about. All that does, James says, that equates us with a demon. He's using some powerful imagery and language there because here's what's true. Demons have better theology than any theologian that has ever lived. They know more about God and his character than any of us ever will. They have experienced the beauty and the majesty of God. They came from heaven. There are no atheist demons. They believe, they have knowledge, and they don't doubt. But they shudder in fear. Knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. Do we pursue knowledge of God? Yes, absolutely, 100%. That's why we're here. We want to know more about who he is. Should we pursue that with everything we have? Absolutely. But if that is what you think maturity is, if that's what you think genuine faith is, all that's going to do is puff us up and make us proud and make us think that we're smarter than the other people in this world. Here's my hunch. Here's my hunch. Because I believe that this is so true of me, I think it's probably true of you. You know more than you're actually applying in your life right now. You know more about God and his kingdom and the things that he's asking you to do than you're actually applying to your life right now. I know that that's true of me, and it's not because I know a lot. It's just that development of our life is not about learning things. It's about applying the things that we learn. I'd say it this way. I think oftentimes we as Christians, we're like bad photographs. We're overexposed and underdeveloped. You guys that are young, kids that are young, don't even know what I'm talking about right now. We actually used to have to take film. But we can be overexposed, so much information but underdeveloped in our character and our obedience. What James wants us to understand, it's not about just knowing things, it's about doing things. And I want to land the plane here. Because I think sometimes just the text itself just takes us right to the application point. James has taken us to the application point. What are you going to do? If you have faith in Christ, if you have a genuine faith, what are you going to do? What is God asking you to do right now? Where does he want you to put your faith in action? For some of you right now, the thing that you need to do is you're just thinking, I don't even know if that's me. I'm not even sure that I am in Christ. I would say the next step for you is to understand the magnitude of what Christ did for you and bow your knee to him. Ask him to be the king of your life. Surrender him and start to follow him today. Don't wait. 
If you don't know that you're in Christ, that's your next step. Some of you right now are dabbling in sin in your life. There's things that you're doing, things that you're thinking about doing, and you need to let go of that. Move away from sin. Move toward God. Some of you, there's a step of courage that you know God wants you to take. You've been reluctant. Can I trust him? Can I trust him to do that? James would say, do it. Show your faith with your actions. And some of you, maybe your next step is to be a blessing to people around you. You've been blessed, but you're blessing constipated. You're just not sharing it with the world. I really should have come up with a better picture than that. Let that go. But that could be true for some of us. What is God asking you to do? I'm going to pray for us here now. As I pray, would you be asking God that question? What is it that you want me to do to put my faith in action? And here's my challenge. I gave the same challenge a couple of weeks ago. Don't leave the parking lot today until you've identified what it is that God wants you to do and tell someone about it. If you're here with someone, tell them what it is that God told you to do. Let's be accountable to one. Let's partner with each other to do the things that God is asking us to do. And if you're watching online, don't turn us off until you know what it is that God wants you to do and tell someone. If you're by yourself, text someone. Let them know what it is that God is asking you to do. Let's pray. God, we need you. I want to thank you for the truth of the new covenant. That becoming in Christ is not about us doing something for you. But it's about responding to what you've done for us. God, I just pray for anyone in this room or anyone that's within the sound of my voice online or elsewhere. God, if you're stirring in their heart, God, would you draw them to make a decision to surrender their life to you today, bow their knee to you as king of all kings. And for those of us that know, that we know that we know that we're in Christ, God, I pray that you would raise the level of gratitude in our heart that would cause us to move toward acts of obedience, that our faith would be in action. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for being our King. And it's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for engaging with this content. If it was encouraging to you, we'd love for you to leave a review. Hit that subscribe button and share this content with others. We'd also love to connect with you. The best place to do that is journeyweb.net. Don't forget to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search Journey Church Bozeman and you'll find us there. If you'd like to give to our ministry, you can do that now at journeyweb.net slash give. Once again, thanks for engaging with Journey Church.